They say a sad tale is best for winter, and so a sad tale is where we begin. Once, a very long, long time ago, in the land we now call Greece, there lived a great and noble king, Saix, the son of the morning star. He ruled his kingdom with wisdom and kindness, and for once there was peace and prosperity in these lands. At that time there also lived a woman named Alcyon. She was the daughter of Iolus, god and keeper of the winds. The day these two met and their eyes fell one upon the other, they were drawn into such a deep and matchless love that from that moment forward no day came when they did not lie in each other's thoughts or in each other's arms. As summer follows spring, so naturally then it followed that these two were wed and such a celebration has rarely been seen. For many blissful months they were deeply, utterly happy, and it seemed to most this happiness should go on forever. But all things change. A morning came when Saix lay awake in his bed, watching his beautiful wife sleeping. He watched as the light crept its way from her shoulder to her perfect neck to her soft and gentle face until that light invited her eyes to slowly open. She looked at him and smiled. I must leave you today, he said. My men and I will be going to see Alcyon bolted upright. What? What has changed? What have I done? What, what sin of mine has made you wish to leave me? No, my love. I must leave, but my life, my joy, my heart, they stay here at home with you. No. There are dark rumors abroad regarding the death of my brother, and many other strange and terrible things seem to be moving in the world. Were I but a man, I would give myself over solely to your keeping for the rest of my days. But I am not a man. I am a king. And a king I must be for my people, and a true son to my family. <laughs> Come, would you ask me to be otherwise? Three times she tried to speak. Three times she faltered, for his words had woken in her some dreadful fear. You think, she said at last, because you are my husband, that my father's winds will spare you? But I have seen them. I know them. As a child I watched and learned to fear them well, for once they are loosed, even my father cannot merely drive back their passionate fury. If you leave me now, Saix, you will die. I know it as surely as I know my own name. Saix looked at his wife. Her face had grown deathly pale, her cheeks were stained with sudden tears, but his mind was made up. Winds or no, fears or no, I am a king, he shouted, and I will go to Apollo and seek out his oracle. 
I will not appear to be some woman's lapdog in the eyes of my people, nor will I simply let my brother's death go unavenged. He knew it was wrong. Sayix, she whispered. Please, if your mind is truly made up, at least take me with you, and we can face the winds together, as husband and wife are made to do. No, he said in a voice that made it clear there was no room for discussion. In one hundred days, I swear I will return to you. And so he dressed and left her there, still weeping. If you look well, you can see the sailors readying themselves in the yard, lifting their precious cargo for trading, carrying it down to the shore, storing their provisions safe under deck to sustain them on their long voyage. King Saix takes the winding road down, down, down to the sea, and Alcyon follows behind him at a distance, dressed in black, as if she's already in mourning and weeping all the while. They come at last to the harbor, and she watches as the ship is loaded, as the sails are made ready. She watches the men assume their positions and stands frozen as her husband, with one last kiss, echoes again how he will soon return to her, and oh, what joy there'll be at their reunion. She watches the ship as it sails far, far from land. She watches as it becomes a speck upon the horizon, and even after that speck disappears still, she watches the horizon until the light has all but forsaken the sky. A month now has come and gone. Alcyon and her ladies have begun to weave. She is making the clothes she tells herself she will give to her husband upon his return. In truth, she weaves to keep her fears at bay, for a dark foreboding has coiled itself within her belly. And so she fills her days with walking or weaving and tending to the affairs of the kingdom. Out at sea the winds are kind and warm, the day is sweet and sunny, the ship is making good speed and fair weather and good conversation keep the men in great spirits. It seems for a time that their journey must be a blessed one. But one morning, when there is as much water before the ship as there is behind it, the sky suddenly begins to darken. The waters turn white-capped and choppy, and the sky begins to roar, as if from nowhere a storm the likes of which has never been seen overtakes our crew. Our captain barks orders to tie up the sails, but the sudden gusts of wind drown out his voice as they do the voices of the terrified men. In moments, our ship, like a town under siege, is being attacked in ten thousand places. One man screams as he's thrown against the railway. Another cries out for his mother. Still others begin to pray to this god and that goddess, begging for mercy, begging for life, begging for air, until each in turn is silenced. Waves taller than any castle seem to rise up out of the dark depths, crashing down in this place and that, until the weight of one mighty wave grabs hold of the mast and a sickening splitting crack is heard. 
What is left of our vessel is dragged forcefully below, taking most of the crew with it, scattering the rest into the dark and wild abyss beyond. Saix, the great king who once held a scepter in his hand, now holds a small piece of timber, clinging with all his might to the only thing left from his proud sailing ship. He does not scream, or cry, or beg, or pray, not even to his father. There is but one thought in his mind and on his lips. Halcyon, he whispers into the night. Halcyon, again and again and again. Far away in Trachis, she wakes suddenly out of a sound sleep. She throws the bedclothes to the floor, wraps her mantle tight around her, and without so much as a candle's light, she is running, running down, down, down to meet the dark and infinite sea. But as her feet touch the water, she stands there, frozen, barely breathing, her feet held fast by salt and sway, staring into the night. Zayx, she whispers into the darkness. But there is no reply. On his tiny piece of wreckage, he imagines that he hears her voice, feels her long and lovely hair, sees her dark eyes one last time. And with his final breath, he does at last begin to pray. To his father, to any gods or goddesses that will listen. Please, he says, please just let my body be buried by the hands of my loving wife. Please, I ask only this, let the sea bear my body back to her so that I might lie one day next to my wife again, in death at least, if never again in life. And sometimes it seems The gods are merciful. One hundred days now have come and gone. Since that dark night, she has not moved her vigil from the water's side, but walks, sits, sighs, stands or lies in the water, hoping that by touching the water she is somehow touching him. Her ladies are worried for their queen. She does not speak, she does not eat or drink, she barely sleeps, and when she does, her dreams are fevered and watery. Days pass, and the world seems to fall away from her knowing, until the crash of waves and the cry of gulls are the only things she remembers. She prays silently to Hera, day after day, night after night, lighting thousands of tiny candles by the water's side. Please, just bring him home. Please, I'll do anything. Just bring him home. Eventually, even proud Hera can bear no more, and the gods themselves take pity. This cannot go on, they say. 
she too will surely perish this way. And so one night, Morpheus is sent to her in a dream, donning the shape of her dead husband. In the dream, he rises out of the sea, naked and pale, walking towards her. Seaweeds and kelp sprout from his head, small fishes dart in and out of his beard, which has grown longer somehow. Barnacles cover patches of his hands and feet. Sakes, she whispers, is that you? For though it seems he stands before her, somehow she knows it is not him. My love, my life, my joy, my light, my everything. Do you not know me? Has death changed me so? Come, you know my spirit and body have parted. You know I cannot walk again in this life with you. Do not let me die unmourned, but neither stay in this endless waiting. Go to our home, put on your mourning clothes, hold a funeral for me and mourn for a year. But when a year and a day have come to pass, throw off those dark garments. Rule our kingdom well in my stead, and find someone to love you as deeply and surely as I have loved you. I cannot bear to see my Alcyon weep. He begins to descend back into the sea. In her sleep, her arms reach out for a body that is not there. Wait, wait, she cries out. Roused by the sound of her own voice, she wakens. But instead of her husband, she finds only sand and salt water in her arms. And she begins to weep uncontrollably. One of her women, hearing her mistress's distress, brings a light rushing to comfort her. But as the light comes nearer, Alcyon's eyes spy something floating in the water. She rises with a start, staring. Oh, poor sailor, she says. How I pity you, and I pity more your wife if she exists, for I know too well. But at that moment, the sun begins its steady climb to meet the horizon, and as the light shifts and dawn fills the sky, she suddenly sees it is him. Six, is this how you would return to me? With a sudden cry, more akin to a wild bird than a woman, she leaps into the air, running into the sea to scoop his cold, lifeless body into her warm arms. But it seems as though the waves rise up to meet them, pushing them together, and as their arms meet for one last embrace, she feels him move and finds his arms are sprouting feathers and her arms too seem to be sprouting wings. For you see, the gods are sometimes merciful. And so it is said, they ascended into the air on that morning a pair of kingfishers, immortal halcyon birds. And it is known, too, 
that for seven days on either side of the winter solstice, the waters that surround the Grecian shores are perfectly still. It is at that time that Aeolus keeps the winds at bay, that his daughter and her husband might nest their young upon the water. And these are the days we call the Halcyon days, or the days of peace and plenty. For in every dark winter, there is new light, and hope and transformation too to be found, even in the heart of the harshest winter storm. Listening to the premiere episode of The Loom, a new podcast series featuring folk tales, myths, legends, and lore from all around the world. My name is Genevieve, and I am delighted to be your host. Today's episode featured the songs Tokidis and Full Monazong by Runehild, as well as Tilgela Flomen by Sun and Moon Dance. The show's theme song, featured here, is Grenin's Bastu, performed by the group Varelsa. All music is used by special permission from these incredibly generous artists. I encourage you to support them in turn by exploring their other music and their websites, listed in the show notes below, as well as featured on the episode's webpage. This podcast is brought to you courtesy of my patrons on Patreon, without whom its existence would not be possible. If you would like to gain early access to each episode or explore extended materials with me, including elements of plant and animal lore, historical context and symbolism, please consider becoming a patron and head on over to patreon.com slash juniper and the wolf. There you will also gain access to bonus episodes as well as exclusive interviews with guest storytellers. If you enjoyed today's episode, Please consider sharing this series with your friends or helping others to find it by leaving a quick rating and a review. Once again, my name is Genevieve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until we meet again. (laughs) 